This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. So how... how how bad is the tribalism? That's really the question I'm kind of asking as we watch us get through this amazingly <laughs> nasty bit of turmoil in our political discourse. Amidst, as I've said, this is the greatest social, political, economic, spiritual, technological renaissance in the history of mankind because uh, high contrast means high growth. And we are growing fast. But the one issue is where's the pendulum swinging on the tribalism? And what is tribalism? Tribalism is, is, of course, just like it sounds, where it is unthinkable, when you're in a state of tribalism, it is unthinkable to consider anything from the opposing tribe. Right? Your tribe will always be right, and their tribe will always be wrong. And in political tribalism, is that a case of where you never, ever, ever, ever vote for the other party, <laughs> no matter what, and you always, always, always believe someone in your party over someone or anyone in the other parties. And ironically, we've even seen this where suddenly a person switches to the party and then whoop, now we believe them because they're not one of ours. They're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever it is. They've switched and now it's cool. And tribalism requires most of all in order to be continued is a pervasive perceived persecution, constant victimhood, the belief that you are under attack and so therefore you must defend your tribe because your very existence and your very identity, your very religion, uh, your very thing that you believe in, like on the left it might be more uh, climate change, on the right it would be uh, the Bible, potentially, I and mean, that's oversimplifying. That's just one possible part of where the tribalism merges into the identity of the individuals. But when you do tribalism, you train, you literally train your brain, you wire your synapses to identify enemies more than identifying your purpose and what you're trying to achieve. And that is playing out right now in ways that I didn't even think was possible. <laughs> we are at a high watermark, and the two political parties have their own version of tribalism. I think they are in different places in the pendulum swings, thank God, uh, because if they were both in the same place of nastiness, uh, we would be looking at the end of America, but instead of we're looking at the rebirth of America, which is very exciting, which party is going to rush into the vacuum of uh, principle and purpose over party and tribe is uh, definitely up for debate. <laughs> it appears the Democrats are moving better that direction, but that is really hard to say because uh, the Republicans uh, are, although in control of things, there is the other part of the Republican Party which is earnestly and desperately seeking to rebuild it all so that uh, it won't it'll get away from the extreme tribalism. And, uh, for instance, the tribalism in the Democratic Party has made them ignore the party's movement away from being the party of the middle class and helping those rise, hoping to rise into the middle class. 
and has justified the coziness with corporations who've been wanting to bust labor and and lower taxes on the super rich, uh, putting more burden on the middle class and lower classes. And that has been ignored by tribalists within the Democratic Party, right? Because, well, as long as the Democrat, it's cool. As long as we got a majority, it's cool. Uh, we'll just keep, you know, ignoring the middle class and the poor. But we but we got a majority. It's like, no, 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 that, that didn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. That's what happened to Obama. Because Obama, uh, as you've heard from the show, I'm a big fan of Obama. I think he's a very principled guy who generally focuses on on trying to help people. But he was also combined with the Democratic Party, which did a lot of this tribalism. It's like, well, as long as we got a Democratic majority, we can just accept uh, some views that are in absolute contradiction to the, the things we've stood for, uh, for a long time, like the middle class. <laughs> it didn't make any sense anymore. They just kind of ignored that uh, circumstance. So the funny thing about that, tribes, and then we're going to talk about the Republican tribalism too, because that's obviously a bigger topic, not because it's more severe or less severe than Democrats, but they're in control of the vast majority of state legislatures, as well as the obvious control of the federal government. And so that's the downside of, uh, it's like when you've, you're into sports, if you just won the Super Bowl, everybody's studying your film to figure out how to beat you. <laughs> and so when you're in charge... You are under the scrutiny and the magnifying glass of whether you are in line with the truth that you purport to be supporting. The purpose that you are claiming is yours. And it is very uh, questionable in this moment. <laughs> Extremely questionable. Because um, you, there's a I come from a family of Eisenhower Republicans. And not a lot of folks in my family recognize the Republican Party anymore. They recognize parts of it. There was, a, again, an emerging swath of Republicans who were trying to step up, you know, the Jeff Flakes and the Bob Corkers. And, and you know, I'm not just saying it because they're opposing Trump. I'm saying it because they're saying, wait a minute, this has become tribalism because we don't believe in this. And yet you're demanding that we believe in this. You're demanding that we believe more in Russia and Vladimir Putin than we believe in America and intelligence agencies in America. This sort of thing is when your tribalism goes, wait a minute, wait, wait, that doesn't make any sense anymore. We're the party of Reagan. We, we, we were the ones that were up, kept the Soviet Union. We, you know, we brought the wall down, right? And now we're saying, no, nah, I think Putin's right. Uh, the dictator who kills reporters regularly and, and go, invades countries and lies about it and, and controls the, the social media of America. Oh, yeah, no, he's good. So <laughs> if that's not an indicator where tribalism is. And so the question is, we've got to figure out where are we on that so we can look at it and say, yeah, no, we're good. This is, this is emerging. That's, that's kind of what I want to convince you of today so that you will see the piece that I see. Because this is really working. It, it has gotten to the point where it's so ridiculous and that it, it, no one's gonna, it's, not gonna, it's gonna fall of its own weight. Right, places like Alabama. So today on Possibility Politics, place where we feelize our way to a better future. In addition to some breaking news on Russia and WikiLeaks, and right now uh, there Jeff Sessions being asked about uh, Hillary Clinton because she's president. Right. Uh, finally, also a um, we're gonna have a decent explanation on when to use the N word. <laughs> I have liked this explanation. The Me Too stories about sexual harassment have moved from Hollywood, business, and sports into the pews and the pulpits. Also, GQ magazine stirred up a controversy with the person they named Citizen of the Year. Eminem talks about fame from the famous side in a new song with Beyonce. Fascinating. Uh, also, it's early, but I'll have some predictions for 2020. And we're going to explain Alabama and what that beautifully strong-willed state says about our nation. That is all going to be happening here. Stick around. It's going to be an intense one, but it's going to be very satisfying right here at Possibility Politics. 
This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This is the home of truth, justice, sarcasm, laughs, and epiphanies, all while looking at this American way. And to that end, to the end of uh, a little bit of comedy, uh, Saturday Night Live killed it. Weekend update. Uh, Colin Jost and Michael Che uh, did a lot of good stuff. I'm going to play a few clips, but uh, this one will get us into our next topic. Alabama Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore has been accused of having inappropriate sexual relations when he was in his 30s with several teenage girls. Now, I'm not saying he's guilty but his naughty little cowboy outfit is screaming it. He looks like a guy who shows up at Westworld and says, hey, can someone show me where the middle school is? And how are we still surprised that someone who puts the Ten Commandments up everywhere doesn't follow them? What's next? It turns out the guy who always jokes about masturbating wasn't joking about masturbating? Oh, Louis C.K. Oh, all right. (laughs) Alabama. Alabama State Auditor Jim Ziegler defended Roy Moore using Mary and Joseph as examples, saying Mary was a teenager, Joseph was an adult carpenter. They became parents of Jesus. A word. (laughs) So that's what you're going with? Roy Moore was trying to make a Jesus? Okay, so I guess R. Kelly was just trying to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) Nice. You can Google that one and figure that one out. So what he referred to is what's going on in Alabama. Alabama. I would have never guessed that this would be kind of the the epicenter for what can could be a really life-changing pendulum swinging turn in tribalism, especially amongst the Republican Party. Each party's got to figure it out. And again, I'm going to get into the Democrats in a minute because we're going to talk about 2020 and we're going to talk about uh, where they're going and and what's happening to the Democratic Party and what, whether or not they're shaking off their tribalism. But as far as uh, Republicans are going, in Alabama, which, as you know, is deep red Republican. And, you know, there was a, a literal, you heard the thing about the Mary and Joseph comparison. There have been a bunch, have been a chorus of, if you will, uh, Republican Taliban. I know that's a strong term, but these are the folks who are so tribalistic that one of them even quoted saying, I would rather have a pedophile as a senator than a Democrat. <laughs> because the the one that Roy Moore is running against is Doug Jones. Look him up. He is a honorable man. And, and that's not just my opinion. Read what George Will wrote. Ultra conservative George Will went on a long rant and an article about, hey, Doug Jones, this is a good guy. And if we've gotten to a point where we're going to elect not just a pedophile in in Roy Moore, uh, but also, and he's actually kind of an admitted pedophile, by the way, if y'all haven't been watching the, uh, the the coverage, he went on Sean Hannity's radio show, one of the most friendly environments he could go, and it was amazing to hear because Sean Hannity was leading him to questions to like say agree to this basically, Roy, and, and you'll you'll be absolved. And Roy kept getting himself deeper incriminated. One of the reasons his argument against the, the one of the latest accusers who was fourteen, actually the last of the first batch, because we have another accuser in the last twenty four hours. Um, one of the accusers, she, he was he was arguing that that wasn't a legitimate account because it was different than the account of the other three teenagers that he was involved in. So he admitted to the other ones as a, some sort of strange defense for this one. And to keep, this is a guy who was literally banned from the local mall because they kept catching him trolling for teenagers, teenage girls, and. At the time, he was the assistant DA. If you guys saw that this latest accuser 
went on with her yearbook signed. And of course, um, you know, Roy Moore got in fire and and said, I don't know anything. I don't remember any of these details. Well, in his defense, a lot of folks said the reason he doesn't remember the details is because he had so many attempts and affairs with teenage girls when he was in his 30s especially that they're all blurred together. But he wrote in her yearbook and indicated he even put Roy Moore DA because he was a district attorney in Etowah County in Alabama. And at the end of trying to rape her, that's arguable, but he was definitely trying to rip her shirt off and he was grabbing her in parts he shouldn't be. And he was forcibly kissing her before he let her out of his, his car. Um, he he, he ad- admitted to doing it all. I mean, in the yearbook, <laughs> and even called himself the DA. And when he said to the, the accuser, to this woman, this this at this time six, this was a sixteen year old woman, uh, girl, said to her that you bet you don't tell anyone because they won't believe you because I'm a district attorney and you're a child. And this is so familiar to a lot of the folks. Women who have who have been through or experienced this kind of thing, and I'm so pleased. This is what you want to see is the is the good side. Is this dialogue is just flooding out right now? There's an article in the Washington Post written by Nancy French says what it's like to watch men like Roy Moore as a conservative and as a sex abuse survivor. Let me just read a little bit. Of this. this is so worth it. She says, I used to admire men like Roy Moore because I loved everything about the church. The off-key, a cappella rendition of Onward Christian Soldiers, the typos in the bulletin, the ladies who smelled like Aquanet with little round rouge circles on their cheeks, and yes, men like Moore who said long prayers and ran the show. This changed one hot summer day when I needed to ride home from vacation Bible school. I was delighted when the preacher volunteered to drop me off. As we drove, I chatted incessantly, happy to have him all to myself without people trying to get his attention in the church parking lot. When we got to my house, I was shocked that he walked me inside my dark house, even more surprised when he lingered in conversation and thunderstruck when he kissed me right on the lips. At 12 years old, I swooned over my good luck. He picked me out of all the girls at church. But the relationship, especially after he moved on, reset my moral compass. If all the church conversation about morality and sexual purity was a lie, what else was fake? Now that that family of God felt incestuous to me, I rejected the church and myself. Didn't I want the preacher's attention? Didn't I cause this? When I careened from faith, I made a series of poor romantic decisions that later almost cost me my life. So it messed her up furthermore. Still, I couldn't very well criticize the church because I was an utter emotional mess. And she writes, on, when I saw the article, all this came back to me. The recent stories about uh, you know Roy Moore. All this came back to me after I read one sentence in the Washington Post. The article was about allegations that Alabama State or Senate candidate Roy Moore sexually had touched a teenager when he was in his 30s. A sentence from Lee Korfman, who was 14 at the time, jumped out at me. The sentence, quote, I felt responsible, she said. I swallowed back tears as I read the rest. I felt like I had done something bad, and it kind of set the course for me doing other things that were bad. After her life spiraled with drinking, drugs, boyfriends, she attempted suicide two years later. In fact, she didn't come forward earlier because she worried that her three divorces and poor financial history would make people doubt her story. And that's the crux of it. You believe that you're alone. You believe that you can't speak up and you're terrified. And you went from being so enamored and excited about this preacher who meant the world to you because he spoke these words that brought light to you. Because a great preacher, if you're even a remotely religious or spiritual kind of person, I'd love a good sermon. When you can just be swept up and your whole body goes into chills because you're just 
feeling it. You're feeling the God go through you. If you're that kind of person, you don't have to be God focused. You can be spiritual focused. You can get those same chills when you think about how your consciousness can wire your own brain and, and create your experience through the law of attraction or whatever you're into. There's a million different ways to look at it, whether it be science or religion. And I say that because I want to include everybody in because we're all on the same page there if we think about it. Everybody knows what that feels like, that that light of ins- that inspiration just flowing through you, that I can do or be or have anything. And that's how these folks make you feel. And then suddenly now they're sexually abusing you. And that's in contradiction to everything they stood for. And that's where the tribalism is right now. You've got folks saying, I would rather have a pedophile than a Democrat. But they are on the extremes. And I feel very good about Alabama. I think Alabama is going to teach us a lot very soon. And then on the other side is folks like Jeff Flake. Keep going, Jeff Flake. You may not be a fan of his politics, uh, his policymaking on tax policy or whatever, but he has relinquished his tribalism. And he said, if between Moore and a Democrat, I would run to the polls to vote for the Democrat. And <laughs> that is where we are. And we have to let Alabama choose. We're going to find out if Alabama's up for the task. And <laughs> it's so interesting, too, because look at the reaction that happened, right? You got Mitch McConnell, who has now said, oh, I believe the women. Uh, and that's, you should. If you listen to this chorus of women, it's easier to believe. But why are, but there's a good swath of the Republican faithful in Alabama who they don't care. And the reason is, is because Mitch McConnell has been exiled from the tribe. He's not part of the tribe anymore. He was against Donald Trump. He was against the things that, you know, obviously people paraded through. Steve Bannon went through Alabama and said, Mitch McConnell's your biggest enemy. And they ran, if you were living in Alabama, you'd see tons of ads blaming Mitch McConnell. He has now been exiled from the tribe. And so he's not, doesn't have any value anymore. And if you're a Trump voter, it, you know, it, now that Trump has taken over Washington, that's what you're excited about. You're glad that Trump took over Washington. And so they look at it like Mitch McConnell. Oh, well, the only reason you're upset, again, the lens of persecution. The reason you're upset is because you're just bothered that Trump's in charge and you want him to go away. And so we don't believe you anymore because you're not part. And, and Alabamans in particular, if you ever get down in the South, I love the South. I go there almost every year, certainly go to New Orleans. Uh, which is uh, different, obviously, but still the South. <laughs> you got to walk around. You go to Mississippi, Alabama. We've traveled all around there. And the great thing about Alabamans is, is that they, uh, they don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> they are fiercely independent, uh, even though they're Republican, not independent Republican, but you know they, they, they have that tribe, but they don't like to be told what to do. But I think they're going to surprise the nation. They're going to probably uh, elect uh, D- Doug Jones. And I, I think this is going to turn. And once they get past the idea of electing a Democrat and the world doesn't come to an end and God doesn't rain hellfire down on them, it might work. (laughs) And because there's got to be that stepping up in the Republican Party like there has been. George Will and folks, Bob Corker, Jeff Flake saying, hey, um, our tribalism is so out of control that we're willing to elect a pedophile rather than (laughs) stand up to what we believe in, which is morality. If if a Democrat had, you know, molested and sexually harassed teenage girls in his 30s, that would not, they would run him out of town. They would say he's the most evil person ever. They'd condemn him. But since it's Roy Moore, apparently it's okay. And... 
And it is, it's kind of a white thing with all due respect to the racist too, because you got to remember that they did some polls, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, but 67% of black evangelicals voted for Hillary. So it's not, don't blame it on just the religion. It is very much the tribalism. The religion is just something to basically color your tribalism and to reinforce it and to say, well, I'm tribalist. Yes, I mean, I'm for the Republican Party, but I'm for the Republican Party because they're the Christian Party. And it's like, well, I don't, isn't, isn't, isn't Jesus available to everybody? I mean, right? So what, was, what I think is needed, because Mitch McConnell says he believes the woman, and uh, <laughs> And we'll get to Louis C.K. here in a second as well, because that's another part of the story. But, you know, you saw the you've heard the Tom Steyer ad where he's running impeachment. He's trying to vie for impeachment against Donald Trump. But the Tom Steyer ad for the Republican Party is it's got to be something like, you know, okay, so it comes out, says, I am a diehard Republican and I can recognize that we will be as a party, a hypocritical laughingstock if we vote for a pedophile and a fraudster, by the way, um, he built his religious charity out of about $1.2 million that he gave to himself and his family. And he's under investigation for tax evasion because he did it to evade taxes in addition to lying to people and saying he was doing it for charities and that he was just taking it for himself. But we will be a hypocritical laughingstock if we vote for that just because the idea of voting for a Democrat is unthinkable. Well, to give up a Republican soul our moral sense of basic Christian decency and vote for who we would otherwise consider an evil man. We would consider Roy Moore an evil man and we have to vote for him just because he's not a Democrat. That is the unconscionable part. It's not unconscionable to vote for a Democrat. It's unconscionable to completely forsake our morals. And there's a whole bunch of Bible quotes that tell you about that. I'm sure you folks that are on the Christian side right now are thinking them through your head. (laughs) <laughs> and that is the difference. And that is how tribalism ends. And it is ending. It is not ending permanently. It'll come and go. But it is that pendulum is swinging back. And this is how it swings back because you get a case in Alabama. I thought it might have happened in Missouri or some blue, you know, purplish state, Ohio or Pennsylvania. But it's happened in deep red. And that's really good because if, if Alabama can let go of their tribalism long enough to say, well, there's an honorable Democrat, Doug Jones, and there is a pedophile fraudster, Roy Moore. I think I'm going to go for Doug Jones. If that happens, we're looking good, ladies and gentlemen. And if it doesn't, well, we'll get to play that out too and see what happens. All right, coming up, (laughs) uh, let's talk about the Democrat side of this because as we go into 2020 and where their tribalism is not quite working, and uh, Louis C.K. and uh, some stuff on... uh, Oh, wow, we'll get to that. When we come back to (laughs) Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics, the place where we try to provide a more satisfying perspective on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, for producing this show. And we're talking about tribalism. Because it really is. (laughs) This is the crux of it, y'all. And again, always the best perspective you can have is if something gets really, really upsetting and it seems really, really out of whack, that's usually because it is. It's your gut telling you the truth. And if it really is that out of whack, that's when change happens. It's the subtle, insidious stuff that makes it difficult. Like I, I, one of my friends, Heidi Harmon, is a new mayor of San Luis Obispo, and she won in this wave of change that occurred after Donald Trump was was being was was elected, selected, was won the electoral college. Is that we always talk about? We say it is such a gift. Donald Trump is a gift, <laughs> and the reason he's a gift because it really shows 
how far uh, tribalism can go. Uh, and are you willing to support someone? Are you willing to have you know all the evangelicals line up behind a guy who, I, I beg you the question, tell me how you see Jesus in Donald Trump. And I don't know how that is. Uh, <laughs> I don't see a lot of uh, great Christian values in Donald Trump. I don't see it. Maybe you see it. If you do, uh, hit me on Facebook, on Possibility Politics. Hit me on uh, on Twitter, whatever, because I'd love to uh, hear that argument. I don't uh, <laughs> have a hard time seeing that one. So, but as far as the travel is concerned, let's go to the the other side of the aisle. I hate that we're in a binary system when there's only two parties, but the, for the moment, that's what we're dealing with. And so on the uh, Democratic side, they are also having their rebirth because they got kind of out of touch. And uh, so much so that uh, uh, Saturday Night Live even did a a great parody uh, that will recognize this. And now a message from the Democratic National Committee. This Tuesday, Americans went to the polls. And they told President Trump, we don't like what you're doing at all, sir. (laughs) And now one thing is clear. We're back, baby. (laughs) The Dems are back. Estamos de vuelta. (laughs) Tim Kaine. You love us again. And we haven't felt this confident since the day before Trump won. You love our fresh new ideas delivered by fresh new faces like me, Nancy Pelosi. And me, Diane Feinstein. And me, Chuck Schumer. Y yo soy Tim Kaine. <laughs> and I'm team player Donna Brazil. Team player, nice. And we also have some great new leaders waiting in the wings like hot young thing Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> And also, that's right. It's Biden time. (laughs) And I'm still around, too. And together, we're going to end the spirit of divisiveness in this country by focusing on how we won the governor's races in two of the ten states we care about. (laughs) And we learned our lesson from the last election. We can't just appeal to coastal elites. We need mouth breathers from Wisconsin and window lickers from Ohio as well. And we know that what Americans really care about is jobs. Jobs like smuggling immigrants across the border and converting Confederate monuments into statues of prominent lesbian poets. The Dems are back. And we won't stop now because we need another path for our country. Another vision for America. Another chance for me, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Just one more chance. And maybe one more chance after that. <laughs> I thought she was dead. <laughs> nice. That was paid for by Mark Cuban for Republican Party. Ah, nice but Sorry, Life. Thank you for that. Uh, but, you know, they, they hit so many good points. Uh, uh, that's because... What both parties have done for the last few election cycles, to a degree, they're both guilty of it. They've been winning on the failures of the other party, right? Nancy Pelosi came into power in 2006 because George Bush and the Iraq War and eventually blowing up the economy. It hadn't blown up quite yet by 2006. Um, And so it was the failures of the other party. And then in comes, you know, Obama. And even though Obama, uh, I would think, had a lot of successes, well, you know, death panels and and Obamacare, and they made that seem like the worst failure ever. And whether you perceive it as a failure or not, obviously, is not the point. The point is, is they sold it on it being a failure. And that doesn't work. And then you see how 
They also got stuck. That, that, that bit just made the point of how uh, parties, in fact, the Democrats, were focused on hitting emotional issues. You know, we're going to rise. We're going to you know help lesbians and this and that, which is obviously a noble thing to do. You want to help everybody, but <laughs> lesbians or otherwise, everybody needs a fair. It's a fair chance and equality. But when you just hit those emotional issues as your fulcrum to get people to the polls, rather than being about what you say you're about, middle class, helping others. You know, if you're on the Republican side, it's about family. If you're really about family, then you don't get rid of the adoption child credit and you don't cut off health care for children. You know, it's this sort of thing. You've got to match what you're saying. You can't just go, hey, gay people, they're terrible, come to the polls. Or, hey, gay people, we need to help them, come to the polls. It's got to be deeper than that. And that is what is happening. Now, Saturday Night Live appropriately mocked the Democrats for not quite figuring it out and thinking, hey, we're popular again. No, 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 no. But what is happening to the tribalism in the Democratic Party, at least, which is very encouraging to me, whether you're a Democrat or not, because I just want to see two working parties that are having constructive ideas and are purpose-driven, whatever that may be, because they're purpose-driven and they're looking to help their fellow mankind, then we can work out the details of how that's executed and we'll, we'll come to, a, you know, not only compromise, but consensus. So the Democrats are being rotated out. Uh, this is a great bit. You got Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and all these people that are the, the uh, you know, the, this elder statesman, and they'll be around. But... In, this, in Virginia and in elections all over the country. And if you could see the number of candidates that we've never seen before flooding into the Democratic Party, not so much the Republicans. I'm still hoping that they will have that same kind of wave of invigoration of new people who want to come in. A lot of people that are jumping in are, uh, are more into the purity. They're even more diehard towards Trump or more diehard towards uh, loyalty and tribalism and either with us or against us. And so they're, they're, their epiphany is still coming to some degree. But in the Democratic side, uh, those who are tired of the Democratic Party not living up to its purposes and principles are just going, well, I'm going to run then. Like I was telling you last uh, show, the run for something campaign, it's really working. And Democratic Socialism, for instance, had a very good year at the bo- bo- ballot box, meaning people who say, well, we need equality, but we also need to be a community and we need to have s- services for those that least among us. And we need, to, you know, healthcare should be a right and, and this sort of thing. But also, uh, we're looking already into towards 2020, right? It's way too early. But I want to give some predictions because I think, it, to me, it gets me excited. They say, well, people, I had a friend of mine the other day saying, uh, well, what, what is, are we going to just see another, you know, same old batch of whatevers that are, uh, no. <laughs> uh, although uh, Joe Biden is not in or out. He basically sat down with Oprah. Maybe I'll get a chance to play that if the, if the show doesn't run out of time. But the, um, there is going to be a, a swath of candidates. And I can guarantee you this, when you, like for instance on the Democratic ticket, uh, both sides, you're going to see more women, you're going to see more people of color or other ethnicities, they ain't just Caucasian, typical Caucasian. But you're also going to see on the Democratic side, I would guess you will see more women and people of color than uh, white people on the stage. There'll probably be 10 or 12 or 14 different candidates at least uh, that are viable and the majority of them will be women. And you will see people like Kamala Harris and all those sort of folks they're talking about, or Bernie Sanders might come around. Uh, but you might also see some, and Jennifer Granholm, uh, former Michigan governor, I wouldn't be surprised if she jumped in. But you're also going to see some folks who have been coming up quietly like Obama did in the ranks right now, 
who were compelled to run and are inspired and exciting and young, most likely, because that right now is going to be called for again, I think. And there's going to be uh, an Obama, male or female, probably a, a lesbian woman of color. <laughs> but who knows, who will who will sneak in and do way better than anyone would ever dream or expected, whether she'll maybe end up being like a vice president. Uh, I can almost guarantee you the vice president will be a young progressive uh, on the Democratic ticket. As uh, will the Republicans will probably have to pick up a uh, vice president of progressive value, too, in order to get somewhere. It's going to be an exciting time, and you're going to be very pleased with where America's going. It's all brewing right now. It's all just happening on the, on the again, the grassroots level. And it hasn't boiled up, which is why Saturday Night Live can still make fun of the leaders who appear to be the old codgers who aren't going anywhere. But it is coming up, and it is coming up very fast. <laughs> It's very exciting. That's all. You can tell in my voice I get very excited about what's going on. All right. So in a minute here, uh, we're going to get into the kind of the lightning round. We have some fun stuff. Uh, the Eminem walk on water thing. I want to play a little of that because it's interesting. The N-word, an explanation of uh, where you can and cannot use it, and the GQ Citizen of the Year and what that did and caused some stirring in the controversial world. That is going to come up here on Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This is the place where you look at this great experiment called America and hopefully leave it better than we found it. Uh, And one of the ways that I think that we're going to leave it better than how we found it is on gender relations. Uh, Here, send it alive, please. Well, it's a good weekend to stay inside since it's 20 degrees out and everyone you've ever heard of is a sex monster. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much true. I mean, it's starting to feel that way. Like, everybody you see is a sex monster. You, you, And again, a few shows ago, we talked about looking inward and saying, well, what do, what do I take a little accounting on on my behavior and what I've done, or including from both sides. Have I been silent when I should have been speaking up? Have I been uh, icky when I should have stopped? And Louis C.K. is now written into history. As part of this dialogue, you probably read his statement. Let me read a little bit of it. I want to address the stories told to the New York Times by five women named Abby, Rebecca, Dana, Julia, and the one who felt able to name themselves and the one who did not. These stories are true. At the time, I said to myself that what I did was okay because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first, which is also true. But what I learned later in life, too late, is that when you have power over another person, asking them to look at your isn't a question. It's a predicament for them. The power I had over these women is that they admired me, and I wielded that power irresponsibly. I have been remorseful of my actions, and I've tried to learn from them and run from them. Now I'm aware of the extent of the impact of my actions. I learned yesterday the extent to which I left these women who admired me feeling badly about themselves and cautious around other men who would have never put them in that position. I also took advantage of the fact that I was widely admired in my and their community, which disabled them from sharing their story and brought hardship to them when they tried because people who looked up to me didn't want to hear it. And that's a, just like we're seeing with Roy Moore. If he's a good Christian who put the Ten Commandments out in front of the courthouse and fought and lost his Supreme Court, uh, Alabama Supreme Court seat because he was wouldn't give up on the Ten Commandments, it's hard to recognize that he was breaking several of them. <laughs> uh, certainly, thou shalt not bear false witness or covet thy neighbor's wife and all this stuff, right? So he was, uh, and when you and now Louis C.K was applauded for this. He said, that's good, man. Look at you. You've totally owned it. He did a little bit closer to what David Letterman did. Remember when he was caught cheating? He said, I did it. I'm wrong. I'm apologizing. I'm on an apology tour. I'm screwed up. But 
in the context, Louis C.K., a week earlier at the Toronto Comedy Festival, I believe, when they bought up the stuff about all these rumors, he says, those are rumors I won't talk about. And he shut it down. It wasn't until the New York Times came out with actual accounts that he was totally forced to say, now I'll give him credit. He said, these are true. This is wrong. I did it wrong. And it was a very honest look at his, and it seems to be somebody who's trying to evolve. But it is also somebody, he had a lot of opportunities to evolve. And he got caught a lot, kind of like Roy Moore. Uh, they knew, everybody in the county and where Roy Moore is, they know he was trolling them all. They knew this is what he did. It was not a secret. But he's powerful, and people let it go. And it's another reason why they're looking at it like, well, how can you be upset? How Mitch McConnell can you be upset? Donald Trump was had 20 women that came forward to accuse him of sexual harassment or assault, and none of that was pursued. And so now suddenly you're upset at Roy Moore, so you just can't sell it anymore. It's very hard to sell it when you're not consistent, and that's the tribalism. The tribalism got so bad that you wouldn't, you weren't able to recognize, oh, yeah, you know what? He's in my tribe, but that doesn't match anything we believe in. So goodbye. See you later, Roy Moore. Again, I, I, I wait on Alabama's decision. I think we'll probably see some polling pretty soon. The election is, is less than a month away. I believe it's December 12th, which is a weird election between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we don't know what the turnout's going to be like. I think it'll be pretty exciting because that's a big deal. Um, there may It may be a reverse Hillary kind of thing, too, where in Alabama, a lot of Republicans are going to figure that, oh, you know, uh, Roy Moore's going to win. The Republican always wins. And then a bunch of Democratic folks uh, like the Trump voters are going to be very excited and show up on a December 12th and flip it for Doug Jones. And we'll see. And again, I don't have a horse in the game other than the Democrat versus Republican. I have the horse that Doug Jones is an honorable prosecutor who, uh, you know, successfully prosecuted the killing of four teenage black girls in a church by bombings by a KKK, as well as a, a history. Look him up. Good man. A uh, very good man, regardless of his, uh, you know, political party. And that's what we need to get to is where we don't care about the political party. We care about the man or the person, the individual that is running. All right. So other things that came down, the N-word. What do you do with the N-word? This one continues to be an issue. And there was a symposium and uh, I'm not sure which college was that. I apologize for not remembering. But Tanahisi Coates, who I've mentioned before, a writer at The Atlantic, author of We Were Eight Years in Power about the Obama administration, black guy, obviously. And a person in the audience asked him, what do you, how do you know she was talking about her discomfort with the N-word? And when I hear it, and I, I don't know what to do. And I like these songs that are that have it pervasive through it. And I can't really sing along. That doesn't seem appropriate. So uh, he had an interesting answer. Um, my wife refers to me as honey. That's accepted and okay between us. If we were walking down the street together and a strange woman referred to me as honey, <laughs> that wouldn't be acceptable. The understanding is I have some sort of relationship with my wife. Hopefully, I have no relationship with this strange woman. <clears throat> when I was young and I used to go see my family uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, where my dad was from, they would all call him Billy. His name is William Paul Coates. Um, no one in Baltimore called him Billy. And had I referred to my father as Billy, that probably would have been a problem. That's because the relationship between myself and my dad is not the same as the relationship between my dad and his mother and his sisters who he grew up with, right? We, we understand that. 
Um, it's the same thing with words within the African-American community, or within any community. Uh, my wife, with her girlfriend, will use the word bitch. I do not join in. I don't, you know, say, hey, I want right? to... I don't do that. I don't do that. And perhaps more importantly, I don't have a desire to do it. You, you understand? You know, um, a while ago, Dan Savage was going to have this uh, show that he was going to call Hey Faggot. I'm not going to yell faggot at Dan Savage. I'm just not, that's not my relationship with the LGBT community. And, and I understand that. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. And you see, it's such a great point because what it means is not so much that, I mean, you can hear that context. Yeah. Okay. Context and time. Then why does it still bother us? Well, the reason it still bothers us is, is because of the racial tension that exists in this country. It's not the word itself, but when you use the word, the N-word, it's like, okay, now I'm talking racial tension. And that's why it's uncomfortable. Again, you, you, but if you could put it in the neutrality like that, well, I'm not going to call my friend's wife honey or sweetie because that's for them. Oh, so, and it's not, and that doesn't mean there's, there's deep-seated gender issues. Well, there are. <laughs> but it, it means more that, you know, it, it's context and, and appropriateness. So if we can all just let that go and say, you know what, okay, black folks call each other the N-word. Uh, gay people call each other the F-word. You know, it's like, okay, all right, well, I'm not going to do that because they're not my sweetie. They're not my honey. They're not my Billy. And uh, what a great point. I, I, I love that. And then does that settle the argument? I don't know. But what it does do is it moves it, and it keeps moving, especially on race. Another one that's being moved on race, GQ magazine, named on the cover, their citizen of the year, Colin Kaepernick. And you can imagine the reaction, ah, you know, because folks are like, how can you do this person who kneels during the, the anthem and call it? You know what? This debate is still going, and uh, so much so that even over Veterans Day, if you didn't catch this, the NFL, you know, went full military. It's part of the, you know, the, the business. It's the promotion. That's what they pay for. The military pays to advertise with the NFL. And part of that advertising is a, a partnership, a cooperative, where they do not only the anthem up until this point, uh, which they don't televise as much anymore, but they also do, they had to, they had to, when the, the teams came out of the tunnel, they were led by, uh, they had everything but Kevlar on. They were led by, you know, soldiers and things. And that's great. That's fine. Um, and that's great. It's enjoyable to people. People like to celebrate, uh, you know, go America. But they had to because of this conflating between racism and honoring or not honoring the flag, which again, this is how the dialogue happens. You just throw it out in front of people and say, well, let's talk about it. And thank God we're talking about it instead of just shut up and get in your place. And so it's moving along. Remember, this has been the NFL and sports, or I should say sports in the military. This has been an un uncomfortable thing for a long time. Remember Muhammad Ali when he said, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? No, I'm not going 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people in the world. <laughs> and then he capped off by saying the Vietnamese people never called me an N-word. That's our discomfort between militarism and our nationalism. It's like our military represents our nation, but it also represents our ability to go overseas and dominate so that we can have the, pie, the control of the pie. 
Uh, and we're working it out. Again, very good growth going on right now. Some other quick lightning round stuff. Aaron Hernandez, remember the football player who uh, he actually killed himself in prison because he was convicted of murder and he... Uh, you remember him. Look it up. Aaron Hernandez. He turns out he had one of the most severe CTE cases ever found in a person his age. Massive brain damage. I mean, and if that doesn't tell you something about what did it cause him to murder? I mean, okay, this is a debate worth having, but it did cause him to do horrible, horrible things that he wouldn't normally have done because his brain was rattled to, to into mush. That's something that's got to be worked out too, right? Uh, some more fun stuff, or some might fun stuff. Did you know that now that Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, and Warren Buffett own more wealth than the entire poorest half of the U.S. population? Take half of the poorest people in the United, in the United States, in the bottom half of the United States, and those three people have more wealth. Something we're working on there. And that's something the Democratic Party, again, in their tribalism, went, well, that's okay. We'll just let that happen. Eh, sort of the middle class is suffering. Oh, as long as you're with the tribe. Nope. Nah. uh You got to go back. And they are going back. And they're being replaced with folks who are determined to have it go back to that. Uh, let's see. Uh, real quick, I wanted to play a little bit of uh, Beyonce and Eminem did something about fame, which is this same topic. It's, do we worship a tribe? Do we worship a leader? Do we worship the top of the thing? And I apologize for the, if those listening to the internet version, you're going to get the, uh, the the swearing and then... <laughs> That's true. I'm a Rubik's. A beautiful mess. At times juvenile, yes. I goof and I jest. A flawed human, I guess, but I'm doing my best to not ruin your expectations and meet him. But first, the speed him verse. Now, Big Sean, he's going too fast. Is he going to shout or curse out his mom? There was a time I had the world by the balls eating out my palm. Every album song I was spazzing the fuck out on. And now I'm getting clowned and frowned on. But the only one who's looking down on me that matters now's is Sean. Am I lucky to be around this long? Begs the question though, especially after the methadone is yesterday fades And the Dresden home is burnt to the ground And all that's left of my house is lawn The crowds are gone And it's time to wash out the blonde Sales decline The curtains drawn, they're closing the set I'm still poking my head from out behind And everyone who has doubt remind Now take your best rhyme Outdo it, now do it a thousand times now let him tell you the world no longer cares or gives a fuck about your rhymes. And as I grow out of sight, out of mind, I might go out of mind. Cause how do I ever let this mic go without a fight? When I made a fucking tightrope out of twine. But when I do fall from these heights, though I'll be fine. I won't pout or cry or spiral down a whine. But I'll decide if it's my final bow this time around. Cause Yeah. 
And so the point of that is there's two sides to the story. There's the side of the Roy Moore where we are elevating him and saying he walks on water and no matter what he does wrong. And then there's the folks who are celebrated like Eminem and Beyonce who go, look, I don't walk on water. Find it within you. And that's the lesson. We have to find it within. Thank you for listening. That's what we do here on Possibility Politics. And uh, we're going to hit some more of that next time because I, I left out a lot of topics. I promise I'll get to them on the next show. Thank you for listening. This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 